You're listening to 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. My name is Neil Mackay and I'll be your host. We're now on to episode 7 of season 5. Thank you so much to everybody who's been following us on Facebook. We've just passed 1,000 followers, which is an amazing milestone. So thank you so much. If you can, go on Facebook. If you haven't already, give us a like and follow. You can also find us on Instagram and YouTube as well. So make sure you follow on there. If you're a regular listener or if you're listening for the first time and you enjoy this content, then please check out patreon.com forward slash a Vietnam podcast or coffee.com. The links are in the show notes. You can either subscribe to be a member on Patreon and you get some awesome member benefits like free tickets to shows and exclusive content. You can see already on there the posts that I've made. Or if you just want to buy me a coffee, that would be amazing as well. I got one today from Tung. I don't know who you are. If you are listening, thank you so much for that coffee. I'm going to go get, get one after this. So thank you so, so much. I also want to give a shout out again to my friend Chris Nguyen at Ranting Bananas Podcast. Make sure you go check that out. It's everywhere you can get podcasts. I was just interviewed by Chris yesterday. That episode should be out by now or will be out soon. And he was talking to me all about comedy and really excited to be interviewed because I'm always the interviewer um, and really share my thoughts on comedy, and my inspiration for how I got into comedy as well. So it was really interesting to be able to share that. As anyone who knows, I don't really talk too much on 7 Million Bikes of Vietnam podcast. It's all about the guest and sharing their story because everyone has a story and I want to share it. But if you want to hear my story, then go and check out Ranting Bananas. And then also as well, check out Afroviet TV as well. The Nam Den, who was interviewed on the last episode, he's got some unbelievable videos on there as well. And you'll be able to find a short video from our podcast as well. So make sure you check out that amazing content. So today's episode is with Eric Garcia. He's a fellow comedian as well. And we talk all about his journey through comedy from New Orleans to LA to Vietnam. And then we also talk about what it's like to be a first generation American from Mexican parents as well. So this is a really good episode. Make sure you listen to it all, stick out to the end. And I hope you enjoy. Cheers. Okay, welcome to season five, episode seven of Seven Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. Now, my guest today is one of a raft of comedians that have now made their way down from Hanoi to Ho Chi Minh City, which includes Kelso Dowling, which is, who is the opening guest of this season, um, Craig Craw, who's going to be the next guest on the show. And my guest today is a basketball coach, an English teacher, a runner-up in the 2019 Vietnam Comedy Competition, and is also a comedy teacher. And to top it all off, he is going to be the next headliner at 1920 Prohibition on the 13th of March. If shows can go ahead, we're just waiting on the news from the government. So my guest today is Eric Garcia. Thank you, Neil. Uh, that is a very, very nice intro. That's couldn't have written it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost as if you told me that information yeah. before we started. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but there, there is a reason for everything. But yeah, thank you, Neil. It's awesome. It's awesome to be here. Congratulations, five seasons. Thank you very when much. You, uh, I was much on the set. I'm not very good with podcasts. So when you told me, it's like, oh, be a part of my podcast. I was like, oh, sure. And then I see like season one, season two, season three. I was like, oh, wow, this is okay. <laughs> so thank you. It, it's good to be on here. One of the, the best compliments I've ever had was from someone you know, Greg Anderson, yeah. up in, in yeah. Hanoi, when yeah. I met him when I was up there. And uh, it was season one, yeah. and uh, it was only a few episodes in, and he posted on Facebook, he said, 
the, the compliment was, it sounds like a real podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely a great compliment. And I was like, yeah, I mean, because a lot of com- a lot of podcasts are pretty like amateur, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is still amateur, right? But I, from the beginning, I've tried my best to make it sound like a real podcast. So we have intro music. We, you know, I try and make it sound professional. So. Mm. I don't know if he meant it to be that much of a compliment, right. but I took it as like a compliment. <laughs> well, you got five seasons, so you know we can say it's intermediate. You know, not yeah. not, not amateur, not pro. You're in that intermediate stage, yeah, yeah. which is good. You know, good. <laughs> I'm in the in the that zone, right? Right. So you've made the trip down, as I mentioned, with Kel. So not you didn't all come together, right. but you've all come about the same time. So what was your reason for moving down to Saigon? Uh, you know, I loved living in Hanoi. You know, I lived there for five and a half years. So it's crazy because whenever um, I come down here, um, there seems to be this air of like, you know, oh, why did you leave Hanoi? It's like, no, like, you know, I always tell people, you know, do you love Saigon? And like, yeah, I love Saigon. It's like, well, if I give you a contract to spend five and a half years in Saigon, would you sign it right now? And, you know, there's always the apprehension, you know, you don't spend that long in some place without loving it. But um, I... I I just kind of hit this groundhog day, you know, mode where every day just kind of felt the same. And whenever I'd go out, it always just, you know, it felt like I knew everything. I knew everyone and I knew how the night was going to go. I knew where the night, you know, when you bar hop, it's supposed to be spontaneous. But like, I know it's like, all right, it's going to go here, here and here. Like I can call it out. So, yeah, I just I just needed to change, you know, for five and a half years. You know, Hanoi has been good to me. But, yeah, I just needed a bit of a different scene. And how are you settling into Saigon? Pretty well, actually. Pretty well. You know, uh, Saigon reminds me a lot of Los Angeles and like how spread out everything is and just, you know, how much driving is a big part of your daily life. That's L.A. culture right there. Um, And yeah, I mean, I've been I've received a warm welcome from everybody and everyone's been so nice to me, Um, asked me to be on the show. So I've been very grateful for that. So, yeah, it's it's been a great transition. I mean, I believe I made the right choice. And I won't ask the question, I know, <laughs> because you've, you've listened to the episode with Kelso. After that, I'm not allowed to ask that question. For anyone who hasn't listened to that episode, um, yes. and Kelso, who's made the same trip decision as uh, yeah. Eric to move down and gets asked all the time, which one's better, Hanoi or Ho Chi Minh City? Yeah. And as Kelso said, um, they're just different. They yeah. doesn't have to be better. So I won't ask the question. Right. But, Ask me, ask me in about five and a half years, yeah. which one's better. You know, let, me get, let me get 11 years collectively in vietnam and i can tell you which one yeah what's the what's a quick comparison though uh you know i've always said you know um saigon is that hustle and bustle city and hanoi is more you know like woodstock uh it's in the culture sense of like you know it's a little bit more laid back you know it's it's a lot more blase about things and it'll get done when it gets done um you know everybody's there's always a lake view that people just chill on for hours on end so it's a little bit more slower paced, smaller, more quaint. Whereas Saigon, it's, you know, get up and you go. And that's why I say it reminds me of L.A. a lot. You know, you just get up and go, get up and go, which ah, I missed, you know. Well, it's interesting because this week I was going, I went back and I was listening to an old episode um, with Francis Fraser Reed that we that we did um, last year, pre-pandemic, we recorded it. And it's the top listened to episode. And so I had to go back and listen to it because I'm doing a bit of a project on it, which people will find out about soon. But anyway, as we were listening to it, um, it was really interesting listening to our our own conversation because Frances was really interesting. And one of the points she made that I was like, oh, wow, I forgot about that. She said Saigon for expats is like a big college campus. 
<laughs> I can see that. I can see that. There's been some. There's been some fraternity nights here in Saigon. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that's totally true. Like it's yeah. just, it's like everyone's in college, and we're all because that's we don't. Most people don't have families. Most people right. are away from home in yeah. a different country. Oh my god! Beer. Yeah, and that question, "Where are you from?" Where are you from? Like mirrors that question in college is, "Whoa, what's your major?" Right? Like when you, I remember being in college and like that was all. Oh, so you know, what are you majoring in? And that's the same question. Oh, yo, where are you from? Yeah. yeah. So you're from New Orleans originally, right? Actually, I'm from Los Angeles, but I'm I'm very New Orleanian uh, in in a lot of ways because uh you know I was born and raised in LA and then when I was 18 I moved straight to New Orleans, Louisiana. And uh, really, those were like, you know, if you think about it, from the time you're 18 to 24, that's when you're really forming as a as an adult. Like, that's when you're going to, like, start the building blocks of who you're going to become, really start settling in. So, yeah, I definitely have a lot of uh, New Orleanianisms. And the- what, what would that be? What, what is a New Orleanism? <laughs> Did I say that right? Yeah. Um, a, it... I'm a wimp with traffic now. Being in LA, like you have to travel like hours. And like now it's like, oh, that's that's 20 minutes. I'm not going there. Cause in New Orleans, everything's so close. Um, also just being so nonplussed about everything. Like kind of, I think that's kind of why I was, I was able to be in Hanoi for so long is cause you know, it was a very similar culture of, you know, the, the climate was the same. Um, lots of bodies of water, like very blase about everything. You know, just relaxed. It, it'll get done when it gets done. Don't worry, you know. Um, th- those are a lot of things that living in New Orleans has, you know, brought, like, given me. And also just the complete love for music, like jazz music and live music. Um, I was definitely spoiled being in New Orleans where music just, you know, permeates throughout the streets. Literally, it you can't go a day without hearing somebody just go to town on a trombone or, you know, working on their craft. And, you know, when you come from a city like that with such big festivals and such a rich culture of music and you go to a city like, I know you kind of like, I, I would go out and I was like, it's just, you know, it doesn't, it's not the same, you know, it, it's not, you know, so I don't, I didn't actually didn't really go out to too many music events in Hanoi because, you know, in, in a way I was just teasing myself because I, I really want to be back in New Orleans for that. It's yeah. a big thing that I miss here. I was um, having a chat last night with a, a Scottish guy and we were just yeah. talking about the music scene in, in Glasgow in particular which has mm-hmm. the best music scene one of the best for like indie music and things like that rock and roll a band I'm really loving right now um, they're called Coasts uh, Jeremy Long uh, a guy that I've worked with and, and he's a good guy um, they're like killing it right now they just got together last year I love their music kind of indie rock um, they're doing gigs all over and they just did like a live um, Zoom gig last week that like watched the whole thing. I actually shared it on the Facebook page, so go and check out the Facebook page and you can see that live gig. So they're really good, so I'm excited to see more of them. And then there's other bands like Skeleton Good. Have you heard of them? No. They're really good, but I haven't seen them in a while. I don't know how often they play. So what then brought you to Vietnam? Uh, <laughs> Brazil, actually. Uh so in uni, I've always wanted, um, I studied languages as well in uni. So like I studied Italian and then I realized Italy wasn't for me and uh, it was a mutual feeling. <laughs> I just could not get Italian down. And, uh, and then I learned Portuguese and I took to it very quickly. And, you know, it, I picked it up very quickly and I fell in love with, you know, Brazilian culture. I uh, studied Brazilian Portuguese, not Portuguese from Portugal. Um and yeah, I wanted to live there. You know, I was looking at Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro and um, their economy at the time 
uh, it still is, just wasn't doing so well, isn't doing so well. So they weren't offering any teaching positions for people to come in. You know, it was always volunteerships. And I was like, all right, let me look at Mexico. And Mexico was offering volunteerships as well. So I was like, all right, you know, I got student loans. I got all these things to pay back. I can't afford to be a volunteer. So I started looking at Southeast Asia and Vietnam was offering me a one-year contract with the option to resign. I was like, there you go. You know, that that's it. That's what I need. So uh, the plan was to spend a couple years in Vietnam and then eventually make my way to Brazil. And uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. I just came and fell in love with the city, fell in love with the country, really. And yeah, I it's been five and a half years and still loving it. Being in Vietnam has been such an amazing base to like, you know, see other parts of the world, like go trekking in Nepal, go to Thailand multiple times and, you know, not have to plan half a year to go to Thailand. You know, it, it can be on a spur of moment. Um, seeing China, um, just different parts of the world. And yeah, I, I, I wouldn't mind staying here for a little bit longer, but at the same time, there's so much of the world that I still want to see and live in as well. Um, ever since I was a kid, I never saw myself living in the United States. I, I appreciate everything my parents did for me uh, to give me the opportunity to leave. Uh, you know, um, my parents came to the U.S. from Mexico. And uh, I guess I learned that immigration lesson from them. <laughs> so I was like, all right, let me, let's keep this train rolling, mom and dad. I'm, I'm going to immigrate to another country. And just keep just keep family tradition alive. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I, I I look back at my friends and you know they're they're great. You know, they're getting married, they're having kids, and I'm happy for them. I really am. But like, I can still acknowledge, still look at that and acknowledge, like, I am happy for you. But that is that is not my route. So when did you start doing stand up comedy? Oh, uh, oof, that's a. Uh, it's good. Uh, officially 21, my 21st birthday. That's what I did. Um, I, I was obsessed with comedy since I was six, man. Um, I saw my first stand-up special, uh, John Leguizamo's Freak, right? That was my first ever special. I saw it on HBO, and I was just captivated. And ever since then, you, you know, the channel was always put to Comedy Central TV, and I was always watching anything comedy-related. So uh, I got really good as a side effect, I got really good at like rehearsing routines and like being able to do jokes verbatim. And when somebody would tell a joke, I was like, ah, you're telling it wrong. This is how you said like, it. One of those people. I was definitely one of those. <laughs> and my best friend at the time, Hannah, um, my best friend at uni, she, is, she just looked at me and was like, you always, like, you have a great memory for seeing something once and then just being able to re- verbatim repeat. I was like, yeah, you know, uh, I love comedy. She's like, why don't you just start writing your own? Like, just write your own stuff and perform it. So on my 21st birthday, you know, I was old enough to legally get in a bar. Uh, I still find that so weird that yeah. 21 but to drink. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So do so do a lot of uh, bar managers find it weird. <laughs> there, there's loopholes around it, you know. Um, so I was like, you know, let me do it. That's, that's going to be my 21st gift to myself. So I went to Carrollton Station uh, in New Orleans and... Uh, the host Cassidy Hanahan brought me up and I was shaking. Like I was rehearsing for like three hours for a two minute set. Cause I've gone before and in this certain mic, like 30 comedians come and they don't want to turn anyone away. That's one thing I really loved about that mic is they never turned anyone away. So if that meant we all got two minutes, then we all just got two minutes because everyone gets a shot. And I was rehearsing for hours for these three minutes and I get up on stage I'm nervous. I'm talking super fast. I'm like, 
<laughs> standing still. And I get a few laughs and I get off stage and I'm just like, all right, like I'm smiles, I'm grins, like this is, and ever since then, like, yeah, I was hooked. You know, I could not, uh, I just kept coming back for more and just kept going, kept going, kept going. Cause yeah, you just, you love it. Do you call yourself a comedian? Oh, absolutely. You know, and I think uh, I wear that badge with pride. Um, this is actually a funny story. I've been thinking about it lately. When I was 12, I had to do those career aptitude tests. You remember those? We oh, my God. Like it is the cruelest thing to do to a 12-year-old child. I'm like, here, this is what you're going to be when you grow up. Learn about this when you're most impressionable. And uh, I did the test, and nobody was around me, which is good because like, I immediately deleted it out, and I did it again. But the very first time I did it, the career aptitude test said I'd be a great party clown. Like, I, I kid you not, a party clown. And I was like, nope, okay, not doing that. And here we are, what, 17 years later? Yeah, that, that, that test knew something, man. That test. <laughs> How is that even an option? Uh, that's a cruel option, okay? That is, you know, I was 12, I get it. But, you know, you could say something like, oh, you'd be a good MC or like... Entertainer or yeah. something. A but party it's like, clown exactly. specific? And it showed, I'll never forget, it Not showed... Not a circus clown. Yeah, party, party clown. clown. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't even be a part of an organization. Like, like, people with fully developed minds wouldn't appreciate it. I have to do it for children. <laughs> You know, I don't ever get it's just a picture of a clown with a bunch of kids around. I was like, that's okay. All right. I fuck you. <laughs> but I guess they're they're onto something, man. They they saw it. So you, you were doing comedy before you got to Vietnam, and then how was it when you got to Hanoi? Was there much of a comedy scene there five and a half years ago? Uh no, no. Um I uh I got in contact with a few comedians before I got here to Vietnam. And I immediately was put to meet uh, Dan Dockery, uh, one of the uh, main promoters and main organizers in Hanoi to this day, actually, for stand-up comedy and other events as well. But um, I had dinner with him, and I was like, look, um, just coming from New Orleans, I've done comedy for a couple years there. And uh, I, I just really liked the opportunity to just perform anywhere, just anything you know, would be fine for me, you know, because in New Orleans, like, you know, uh, you you were nothing. There was 50, 60 comics there, like, at any given time, ready to perform. So, like, I was just a blip, you know, and I knew that about myself. So when I come, Dan is like, all right, you want to host five shows in a row? I was like, uh, yeah, like, of course, I'm not going to say no to that and be an idiot too. But, yeah, that's kind of like we would have one show a month, and that's where I met Minkus and Mike, who Mike left Hanoi, but Minkus is still there. And uh, yeah, we just, uh, it, one show a month definitely wasn't enough. Coming from New Orleans where you had like eight or 10 shows a week and to go to one show a month, that was, that was, that was hard. So I would have to go to open mics where, <laughs> where I would have to share the mic with, you know, musicians and poets and uh, just different types of artists. And, you know, the showrunner there, Paul Sonic, is really kind and he always made room for me. And uh, yeah, I was the only, <laughs> it was it was a special type of night when like people are going there to listen to music and poetry. I was like, all right, here comes a guy, I got to talk about his dick for two, three minutes. Let's talk about that. And, uh, and just, I would, I would fuck up so much of the vibe and so much memento. Um, but I appreciated it because uh, that's the one thing 
I, I really learned from those mics is, you know, when you have a good crowd or like, you know, what comedians call a great crowd, they're great, you know, for the ego and they're great for you to fine tune things, you know, fine tune jokes with. But when you have a bad crowd, they will really give you tough skin because when you fail that many times consistently over and over again, like you just, you learn to make it just treat it like water off the duck's back. And yeah, it was those mics, those hard mics where like nobody wanted me there. I remember there was sometimes I'd look at the stage and people were like scolding at me, like just like giving me laser beams. And I was like, okay, I don't want to be up here either. Okay. <laughs> but I have to. And uh, yeah, you know, those crowds just make you tougher in a lot of ways. I'm, I'm very spoiled in mm. terms of I didn't get into comedy until I was in Vietnam. And as you know, there's not a huge pool of comedians and there's not a huge yeah. amount of audience because of in expats in Saigon, I think there's about 100,000 and that mm. includes Koreans, Chinese, Japanese. Right, non-Vietnamese, yeah. yeah. And Westerners as well, yeah. like people who speak English. So the audience for comedy here, even though we're in a city of 10 million people, is very small yeah. because it's in English. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a good and a bad thing because when I hear stories like this, like I was just talking to Ben Betterby last week and he mm-hmm. was back home in Arkansas. I think he was in and similar story even now to do an open mic night, you had to line up mm-hmm. outside the comedy store or the comedy yeah. club in the freezing cold and literally you didn't even know how many minutes you had yeah. until they, you, they told you you were on. So you, you had to prepare if you were going to do three minutes, five minutes, 12 minutes, things like this. Right. And then you hear stories like you and then Devin Gray told me as well before when he was in South Africa, you had to, you know, go out and flyer and yeah. unless 20 people came to the show from your flyers, you didn't get a spot. Yeah. Whereas here in Saigon, the entry is so low because yeah. there's not many comedians, not many shows. So you anyone, you can start performing regularly here without any of those barriers right here. Yeah. And uh yeah, and then we are, and I am forever grateful that I started doing comedy in the States before I came here because that is a standard I always have in my head. And, you know, that's the standard uh, where my foundation was built in New Orleans. So, um, you know, they're telling you, I'll give you my story is uh, my favorite mic that I would keep coming back to. Carrollton Station, I loved, and I loved that they would do that. But uh, Red Beans, Howlin' Wolf. Red Beans is big dude, man. This huge dude, laid back guy. And the Howlin' Wolf Everything I'm about to tell you, you think this is the perfect set of comedy. <laughs> and uh, it's this back room, theater style. You're sitting there and it's like, it maybe fits like 20 people, theater seats, you know? So it's a small, intimate room without feeling overwhelming. And it's the one room I never got a laugh in. And it's the one room like people would show up. I felt like, I'll always say like, I feel like people are showing up here not to laugh because it wasn't just me. It was like other comedians just had such difficulty with that room but the crowd it was crazy because the crowd would keep coming back and it was just like this like masochistic exchange you know like like oh man but it, it made again like that was a room that I just kept coming back to because it made me tougher like I was like right, I gotta I gotta turn turn you guys and the thing is Red Bean wouldn't give you a time he just like do whatever you want and I'll let you know when you're off and so, you know, you'd be eating crap for like 10, 15 minutes. And it's like, all right, now you can come off. And, you know, looking back and I was like, damn, like that was brutal. And then now that I see it, I was like, oh, no, like that was that was a proving ground right there. If you can eat crap for 10, 15 minutes and still have like the gut to come back the next week and do it again. This is, you know, I think you found a passion here. And that's the other thing why I'm spoiled that I started here, because... Mm-hmm. 
I don't know if I would ever be able to do comedy in another city because I've just been here and it's not had to do that, not had to do the grind of those kind of gigs and things like that. And the audiences here are generally amazing. Like I've never had really like a bad crowd. I've never mm -hmm. had a heckler, but unless they were a friend. Mm -hmm. um, so we're just really lucky here yeah. um, that, that we get to to do that but at the same time it's probably not best for my development because it's probably too easy <laughs> no I mean I don't know I think if it depends on for me personally it depends on how you look at things yeah you know it. Uh, I usually tell myself you know if you have a bad night um, don't take it too personally if you have a good night don't take it too personally either you know there is the truth of where you really went is somewhere in there and you gotta you know that's why I record myself and listen to myself. It's like, okay, is this really where I want to go? And uh, going, hearkening on something you just said, that the bad crowd, um, that's something I I try to avoid ever labeling any crowd with good or bad because um, the way I see it is, uh, and this was uh, my first year, one of the comedians, Ariel, she's in New York um, now, and she gave me this advice and I still hold it true. She said, look, at the end of the day, remember two things. Nobody's there to see you. Nobody's there for you, even though you're on stage. And B, if you have a bad night, nobody's going to remember you anyways. Like, and, that, and that's the truth. Like, they, they won't remember my set. So I don't know. Um, this whole good crowd, bad crowd, I try not to do that because I feel like it's, in a way, it's, it's deflecting responsibility of how I did that night. And, you know, I, if you really want to get better... It's, it's it's ugly mirror you got to look in, but you got to look in it and try to fix it for the next show. You know, these are people, and it's true, you know, nobody's there to see me. I 100% yeah. agree. And I was going to ask you, do you believe in a good crowd or a bad crowd? But you've already answered it. Yeah. So I am a person, I've got a very much an internal locus of control, right? So mm -hmm. I believe everything is, not everything, but you're in control of what you do, right? right. So I don't, believe that there is such a thing as a bad crowd and because if you do believe that exactly what you're saying and if you believe that with anything in life like it's their fault or it's that mm. fault or something you're taking the blame away from you so if I have a bad night I know it's me I'm like I was terrible tonight like mm. I didn't have the energy I didn't do the jokes right like it's not right. like this random group of people why are suddenly a bad crowd yeah and what's brought it home once before I remember was a bunch of comedians had, had all had a bad night just the energy in the room or whatever it was, no one was really having a good night. And you could be like, oh, it's not a good crowd tonight, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of old trope. But then Devin Gray got up and actually <laughs> killed it. Yeah. And the whole crowd is laughing. Yeah. And right away, I'm like, there's no such thing as a bad crowd. Yeah. We were bad. They didn't laugh. Yeah. He got up. He was amazing. All these people are now laughing. It's yeah. about you. Right. It's, you know, you got to think about it. And I think going back to it, like, there is a certain sort of pride in like, you know, being... Uh, starting in New Orleans and then coming here because I think kind of what you were saying about being spoiled is a lot of comedians, you can tell a lot if a comedian started in Southeast Asia versus if they started back home on how they handle, you know, crowds and stuff. But there is one like, oh, you know, it's a terrible crowd or like, oh, you know. So, yeah, you know, there there are things that, you know, I, I do feel like a lot of comedians are spoiled take for granted. I don't want to say spoiled. They take for granted. And it's like, you know, they should laugh at me. Like they treat the crowd as the crowd has a responsibility to laugh at their jokes. They don't, you know, these are people who are taking a break from their jobs. They're coming to see 
a show on a Saturday or Friday or Thursday night, Tuesday night, you know. These are people who could have made other plans, but instead they have chosen to be there in that moment. They, Some of them have gone babysitters. Some of them have turned down other plans. Some of them have, you know, and all, not only did they do all those things, they are sitting down and they've all collectively agreed to be quiet and listen. Think about it. That's think about, a great point. Think about everything the audience is doing and that's they're giving you every benefit of the doubt and you have not said a word yet. So that's a that's a big way I like to look at it. And I, I don't yeah, I, I avoid labeling that whole good crowd, bad crowd thing there. It's it's my job to make you laugh. Yeah. And what you just said there, I actually remember saying that on stage one night. I got up an open mic night and it was my opening line and I was like, You guys could be doing anything else tonight mm. and you've come out to watch this comedy? What is wrong with you? <laughs> So that was just, but it, the thing is, and I, the same, if you are listening to this podcast right now, thank you. Honestly, mm-hmm. I think same as what you've just kind of said. If you take the time to go to a comedy show, if you are listening to this right now, whatever you're doing, the dishes, working out in the car, on a bike, wherever you are, you're just sitting on the couch, but with podcasts, you're always doing something else, right? Mm-hmm. I appreciate it so much because literally you could be doing anything and we live in this world with like unlimited content. Like yeah. it's so difficult to choose a podcast to listen to, to choose a Netflix show to watch. And you've chosen to listen to this or you've chosen to come to a show and sit there and watch. So if you are an audience member, maybe it's good to hear that for us as comedians, and I can't speak for all comedians, but for these two here, we appreciate it so much. Yeah, there's so many other things you could be doing. And yeah, for me, like it hit me when I was teaching lesson. I was like, oh, wow, like, you know, because I'm a teacher as well. So, uh, like, listen, teaching my students is like, man, it's a lot, honestly, to ask a student to sit there and listen to you give, like, a five, ten-minute lesson before they do their job. And then I realized adults were not too far off, you know. Adults are actually worse at listening in a lot of ways, and yet here they are sitting and agreeing to listen. So that is that is a big, I guess, privilege and that we get to ask. We get to ask of people. Now, I don't, so we've talked about we don't agree with a good crowd or a bad crowd, mm-hmm. but I do believe that there is the difference between a good gig and a bad gig. Mm-hmm. And I'll expand just a little bit. If you get a chance, go and listen to the Ricky Gervais podcast. It's, mm-hmm. it's available everywhere, I think, and it's the best of his Sirius FM show. So I think it was a paid show, but now they've made like a kind of free podcast. And what they talk about with a lot of his guests who are comedians as well, not all comedians, but a lot of them, and they share these horror stories of, and this, again, I'm so spoiled because I haven't done that kind of like, you know, and Ricky Gervais says the same. He didn't start doing stand-up till he was 38, mm-hmm. and he was already famous because he'd done The Office and things right. like that. So he always says to these guys, I didn't do that thing in the comedy scene where you struggle mm-hmm. and you go through all these venues and blah, blah, blah. And anyway, So he always has them share some of their bad gigs, and the two that stands out, and then you can ask my answer my question. The two that stand out are the first one was the guy got booked to do a, his first ever stand-up gig. It was kind of like a challenge. And so he got booked to do this gig in a bar and he showed up and there was a funeral finishing. Oh. And there was a wake. So he showed up and he's like, why, why are these people crying in the corner? And they're like, oh, they're, we've just had a, a wake here for the, yeah. like, the funeral for the local guy. Like, but you're going to be in that corner, so just go up and like do your 10 minutes. So he had to follow a wake. And then this other one, the female comedian showed up to this one of these kind of clubs or whatnot. And not only was the music like banging, 
she got to like the DJ booth because there was no one to talk to. And she's like, oh, you know, I'm here. I've been booked to do a show. Like, he's like, all right, yep, I'll just get you up in a minute. Here's the microphone. And the DJ booth was behind a wall. And he's like, yeah, just go. So she had to do a set from behind a wall. And so she's just speaking and people can just hear this like voice, but they can't see her. And so again, there, so there is a difference between a good gig and a bad gig. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I feel for the guy who had to pre- perform at Awake. His first show? First, first show. That, that's a hard act to follow. You know, that is a hard act to follow, to say the least. And then just performing like some omnipotent genie. <laughs> that's that's got to suck. So do you have any similar examples of like a yes. bad gig? Oh, my God. It's a bad gig. And it was for, you know, it was for the scrub acts, you know, and this is... I loved it. I look back and I laugh. It was called, um, I think it was called Ha Ha's and Ta Ta's. And just wait, because it was a comedy, stand up comedy slash burlesque show. And uh, it was in the old quarter of New Orleans. And the fucked up part about this was at that same time, there was already a booked burlesque show and a booked comedy show. And this was the free show. So we were the rejects that couldn't even get to the actual, like, I think it was in the Hi-Hat Lounge comedy burlesque show. So think about the standard of a show like that. And then think about the people who are performing at a show that's not even at that standard. That was us, man. We had no stage. We were just at a bar performing at a mic. And it was like this, like, core that just hit the speaker that was right behind us. There was always this like half a second delay on what I don't know why we weren't that far away from the speaker, but like I would talk and then half a second later my joke would come out from behind me and startle me. And oh man. And then yeah, uh, reject stand ups and burlesque dancers vying for an audience. That was that was that was a good night. But like I said, I look back at those nights with smiles and just you know, you, you got to laugh at those. You know, those are just crazy stories you you gain. I, I do remember I also had to com- come up after a spoken word poet who had just gotten done talking about suicide. And I was like, okay, mm, this is... Because when my first joke was about suicide, <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm not going to open with that. I'm not. I shouldn't. Now, you also are a comedy teacher. Yeah. So how did you get into that? Um... It was, uh, you know, I think in the past couple of years, it kind of came about with, um, you know, when you, you've been doing comedy in Hanoi for five and a half years and, you know, people usually reach out to you, you know, to talk about like, okay, we're doing a show. We want you to do it. And I'll, yeah, I'll definitely do it. You know, or like, oh, hey, you know, we're doing a show. Who, sh- who do you recommend to be performing there? And, and I realized like, you know, rather than just, because we've had those guys that come in that like came from LA or like came from the UK and you know they would kind of look their no- look down their nose at all of us like they're so much better than us but then at the same time they would never extend a handout and help us become better maybe they would but they would be very selective about it you know i did receive some help from some of those comics but like it wasn't like a universal let's help everyone out so being there for five years, being a staple part of the scene, you know, I had to ask myself if if I am one of the top ranked comedians in Vietnam, if if I did grind for 
you know, the skills that I have now, what is it worth if I'm not using that knowledge and I'm not using that to help others, A, not make the same mistake as I did, B, not take that long to develop, because I took a really long time to develop. And a large part of that is because I had nobody to like really take me under the wing and say, do this, don't do that, let that go, work with this, you know, um, so looking at the comedians here, I was like, you know, I think it's time, you know, we start writing groups and let's try to teach stand up to at least keep, give people a foundation so they can, if they want to do comedy, they can do it and they have the right tools to like do it quicker than it took me. Cause I mean, I was just figuring it out by discovery. So for anyone who is thinking of getting into stand up comedy, then what would be your biggest tips? Uh, just do it. Honestly. Um, so many, and this is not me, this is every Sunday comedian, I believe, I believe we get this, where people will walk up to us and be like, oh my God, that's amazing. I want to do it, right? I want to do it. Uh, I just don't know how, or like, I'm not ready yet. You're never, you're never going to understand this. You are never ready for what stand-up is. You're not. I've seen, I've... It took got, me seven years to yeah. pluck up the courage to get on stage. Yeah, it's... And that's the thing of like, I've seen it with other comedians, you know, they go, they come up confident and then it's their first time and they come off shaking. Other comedians, they don't know what to expect. Like ultimately, when you're facing a crowd that's silent and they're looking at you and they all expect something of you, you know, it, it, yeah, there's a, you're never really ready for it. So get that excuse out of your head. You're not going to be ready. That is okay. Um, the biggest advice I can get and get give to you is just get up on stage and know that in the back of your mind, you're going to have 10, 15, 20 other stand-up comedians that are going to be ready to shake your hand, hug you, whisper into your ear, encourage you to keep on coming out. Cause that's the one thing I like is we've none, none of them have not experienced what you just about what you've just experienced. So we're definitely going to, yeah, just ask you to keep coming out and, try to help you in any way we can. So know that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Just do it. That's it. <laughs> I think I, I almost said, don't say just do it. What's yeah. another answer? Cause I mean, but that yeah. is just the biggest thing. You've just got to yeah. go and do it. Right. Right. Get out your head and understand you're actually a lot more supported than you really think you are. And it's usually coming from the other comics. Mm. Mm. So you mentioned earlier, your parents um, immigrated from Mexico. Yeah. So you have, what was that like growing up? Um, and I hate to ask, but how has that experience been over the last four years under this? Oh, no, don't resident? be. Um, no, thank you for asking, actually. Um, it's been, you know, every year I get more and more prideful of my upbringing. Um, so, I mean, I just get everything from my mom, my brother, my sister. Like, we were just there. I'm not the funniest person in my family by far. It's my brother is the funniest. My mom is vying for a second. And my sister and I are duking it out for third. You know, it, it's that type. But, you know, growing up, it was it was interesting because it's the world you know is the normal world. And everything outside of it is strange to you. So I grew up the son of two immigrants. And my friends also grew up the sons and daughters of two immigrants. And my cousins also, you know, we we were the first generation Americans. Me and all my friends, we were a wave of first-generation Americans that our parents all came to uh, Los Angeles and, you know, gave up their opportunities so we can have that. Uh, it, it definitely fills me with a lot of pride, yes, also for my friends growing up because 
you know, the situation that we grew up in where the rhetoric was consistent um, throughout our entire lives of, you know, calling us things like wetbacks and beaners and, you know, asking them to kick us, you know, asking the government to kick us out or kick our parents out and things like that. You know, it, it's something you become desensitized to because it's just it's it's just how the world sees you. And, you know, we just kind of, you know, grew tough skin to that. Um, but I think as growing up older and seeing not only what I've done, but what my cousins have done and what my brothers and sisters have done and what my friends have done, I, I feel immensely proud at everything they're doing within their communities, within their families to get break out of generational poverty and go into the middle class and bring people up. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really inspired by that. So, and in the past four years, I've become way, way more prideful because, um, it wasn't until I left LA when I was 18 that it really started hitting me, um, as far as the negative preconceived notions that everyone would have of me. Um, I've gone through many inhumane experiences with peers and colleagues at university and at work, where, you know, I, I, I was uh, asked, like, open up my bags when things would go missing. Um, I'd be, like, you know, walking down the street and immediately people would just, like, walk to the other side. And, you know, when you grow up in a Latino, pop, like, in a city that's mainly Latino, you don't experience that. And then when you leave that and you walk around and you see how everyone sees you, yeah, it... um. It was tough, but, you know, I kind of used comedy as my tool to, like, debunk a lot of the stigma, a lot of the aggression people have with me when they first see me. Because um, I don't know if you guys listening uh, know, I'm a fairly big individual. Uh, I'm about, like, 194 centimeters, six foot four, um, broad gentleman. So, if, you know, obviously when people see me walking down the street, um, I feel some type of way. But um, the past four years, I've definitely ramped up the amount of jokes I do about like racism and building the wall. And, you know, I always try my best to make sure that being Latino isn't the joke. The joke is racism. The joke is these forms are archaic and they're out of date. And the joke is that for however dumb people think we are, their predictions are, or their um, preconceived notions are infinitely way more dumb and uh, yeah, so there you, you can see it in some of my jokes. Like one of my favorite jokes is uh, whenever anyone calls me well-spoken. I, I, yeah, I get that a lot. And it's, it's kind of like nails to a chalkboard. Because any of you listening, if you don't know why that's so offensive, it's, uh, you're basically saying, uh, you look really dumb. And uh, I didn't expect you to not be dumb. And I, I've received so many iterations of like, you're really well-spoken. Or like, wow, you know, you have a great vocabulary. Or uh one one girl I was on date with, and she kept interrupting the date to tell me how much of a university student I sounded like. I was like, I, I went to university. You know, that's this. But um, the so, recent episode we just did mm. with Chris Nguyen, who's yeah. uh, from the UK, but experience mm. of Vietnamese, and he said the worst thing that he got. We he was on a date with this girl, and she's like, "But you're like really white, aren't you?" <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> so you're saying nails on a job yeah and then yeah, when he told me that I was like wow and then so I mm. I equate that as a, a similar to you mm. know very well spoken this kind of yeah. notion and you know I think as white people we do that it's terrible but we're like oh you're kind of like us we didn't expect <laughs> it you know what I mean yeah. we're shocked that, mm -hmm. which is terrible oh man uh, yeah you know so Growing up, and these past four years, honestly, I've been very honest on stage. These past four years have been nothing new. 
in, in, in at least when talking about the politics and the attitudes towards uh, Latino Americans, because it's not just Mexicans, Guatemalans, um, Puerto Ricans, uh, you know, Dominicans. Everybody gets it in Latin America, and Mexican is just the umbrella that a lot of like Salvadorians and Guatemalans get put in as well, and Colombians. But um, it's it's what we've been facing our entire lives, and you know, so many people are like, oh my God, Eric, are you okay? It's, it's like I, my entire life I've been told this. You know, I'm used to it. Um, are you okay? Is what I asked them. Are you okay right now? <laughs> like, do you need me to talk you through this, and I'll hold your hand? But uh, yeah, so. I think it's it's a big reason why I gave you I asked you to give me the intro that you gave me. It's because you know there's so much negativity, negative attitudes, and negativity about Latino Americans, both in the news and the media. And in the media, what I mean by that is uh, how we are portrayed in movies, and also how we're not you know not given roles. Like people forget, like nobody, everybody was in a hullabaloo about. You know, James Bond potentially being black. You remember that? And there was this whole thing, also a black stormtrooper. But th- these are the same people that were really, really, really quiet when they made Bane British. Bane from the Batman movies. Because Bane is a, he's a luchador. Oh, okay. Yeah, he, oh, he, he's, a, he's a Mexican. Bane is a luchador. He's, a, he's not Mexican. He's from a fictional Latino country. But come on, we all know where luchadors are from, you know? <laughs> And he speaks in Spanglish, and his dialogue options are in Spanish or Spanglish. Like, he's very, like, Danny Trejo voices him. Like, he's he's Latino. Wow. And you got Thomas Hardy, the most British dude. And uh, same thing in Star Trek, right? The Wrath of Khan. Khan is a Latino, right? Khan is, a, if you go back to Star Trek and you go back to the episode The Seed, um, Khan is supposed to be the best parts of all of human, or like the the highest or the most impressive parts of all of humanity to make the perfect human. That's why he's so strong. He's so smart. He's so fast. And they casted a Latino to portray him because, you know, in 1970s, they had the foresight to realize, oh, Latin America is just a mix of every race. And, you know, um, I forgot, I think, I forget his first name, but it's Multalban. 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 There you go. Multalban was playing him. And uh, who did they get for the reenactment? Another British dude, right? Benedict Cumberbatch. But uh, so, yeah, you know, I think it's it's time that Latinos start giving, getting the roses that they have been long overdue for. Mm. Mm. What's interesting, have you watched Master of None? Yes. With Aziz and Zari, and he, mm. he brings up the similar kind of things about mm. how all the roles they go for is like Indian taxi driver, and he right. has to do the right. ridiculous voice. And in that show, I think he's like, can I not do it in my own voice? Right. Like, I'm American. Yeah. You know? And they're like, no, no, do it in the voice or whatever. So, yeah, I guess it's very similar as well with the Latino community yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Hollywood made money off of demonizing Latinos. Because uh, when you go back to, like, old spaghetti westerns, the antagonist would always be a Latino character. So, you know. We're not we're not all bad. <laughs> we're, not, we're not bad people. All right, is what I'm saying. All right? We're... We've done some good shit. You notice this stuff as you get older, the demonization of certain races or whatnot, whether it's that or, Mm. um, you know, all the movies, I think, think of like, what's that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie? The terrorists are all, you know, with towels on their head. Oh, yeah, like Commando or something like that. I'm not thinking of the other one where Jamie Lee Curtis is in it. Oh, uh, True Lies. True Lies, it's one of my favorite movies. It's a good one, but you watch these kind of movies from back in the day and they're like, yeah, it's just always painting. But it does so 
American-centric. Yeah. Um, an Anglo-American-centric, right. white American-centric, right? right? Like, so the bad guys are always going to be Asian mafia mm-hmm. or Iranian terrorists or Mexican right. immigrants, you know? And it's always... That, yeah, so, and as I've grown older, you realise that then what that media is putting out there is then that's what society is then absorbing, you know, so then they're thinking, well, that's how it is, you know? Right. Yeah, and, and, and in a way, like, it permeates. And people always ask me, like, why do you make such a big deal out of it? Just let it go. And, like, oh, my God, this. Like, no, because it permeates through it. Because, okay, you might not think Latinos are bad people. Great. Congratulations, you're doing the bare minimum. But you're also not associating us with some of the great achievements we have done and some of the things that could not be responsible without us, you know. Uh, I wholeheartedly believe Hollywood would not be there if it wasn't for us, you know. And even in the silent film era, in the silent film era, Latinos played a huge role in the actors and actresses. And then when talkies came, a lot of them had accents and they were the, some of the first to go, you know, some of the most prominent actors because, you know, they talk with a Latino accent and boom, you know, that's it. That was all she wrote, despite the fact that that actor had brought in so much revenue for the company. That's crazy. I didn't mm. know that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, it's it's a big point of pride, especially in the past four years, not because of politically, because socially I still see it in a lot of people's like, okay, you need to stop, you know, even, yeah, you need to stop referring to immigrants as criminal. You need to stop referring to them like they're not people, you know? One of my favorite TV shows of all time is mm. The Office, the, but the yeah. American version. Yeah. I love the British one as well. And you know there's a character in there, Oscar Martinez, who's yeah. first-generation American parents are Mexican. Right. And in one episode, you know, Michael Scott, who's highly offensive, but also, <laughs> like, got a heart of gold. He's not trying to offend. Yeah. One of my favorite lines is uh, he says to him, is there a less offensive, <laughs> you know what I'm going to say? Is there a less offensive term to you than Mexican? And he's like, what do, you, what do you mean less offensive? And he's like, well, you know, like, and then he moves yeah. on. Uh, oh my God, I, I was having that conversation yesterday, actually. Because <laughs> like, we were talking about a mutual friend and um, or the person was like, oh, you know, they're, uh, they're, uh, the and I was like the black guy, yeah, the black guy. You can say it's just a descriptive factor. You're not being derogatory. You're not implying that they're lesser. You just, you know, that's fine. Like when people say, "Oh, you know, Eric, which Eric? Mexican Eric? Thank you. Okay, we're getting to where I'm at. You know, that's fine. But like, if when you're using it to put somebody down, then it becomes a problem. But if you just, for me, right? I don't speak. I do not speak for everyone. You don't. But, no. Uh, I tried to. I applied at the meeting to be the spokesman, <laughs> and uh, America Ferrara beat me out. That's <laughs> that's a- AOC beat me out. There you go. Uh, mm. What do you think about people calling her AOC? Because I find it quite um, what's the word demeaning? I guess. Like, can you not just say her full name? Is she the only person that we're so lazy that we can't say Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Like, I know it's a bit of a mouthful. There's a lot of consonants in there. It's a double-barreled name. Right. But maybe I'm wrong. Is there anyone else where we only say their initials? Right. I don't know. You know, I never thought about that, but that is a very good point. Yeah. Um, It bugs me. I think it's so disrespectful. That's what I'm looking for. Disrespectful. Right. And how we, yeah, just treat political figures in general because we can all pronounce Benedict Cumberbatch like him right? <laughs> yeah we don't right. call him BC yeah we want to call him BC so yeah I, I'm with you on that <laughs> Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez yeah 
It's not that difficult. Right? No, not at all. Yeah. I can say all types of Boo Radleys, yeah. Annie Janes, and you can say three words. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Now, how have you found the reaction in Vietnam to being a Latino here? Uh, I'll let you know when they react to me being Latino. So far, everyone thinks I'm Indian, and I'm too polite to correct them. <laughs> <laughs> have you had that? Oh, all the time, all the time. You know, and that's one of my one of my jokes as well. You know, it's uh, I came I came to Vietnam to become an American, and that's crazy. Where I'm an American first, you know, I'm a man second, and I'm an Indian third. Um, the amount of times people are like, oh, that guy, the what guy, the tall Indian guy. I was like, oh, well, whenever you find that tall Indian guy, let me know. But, you know or like, I got an Indian, I got Maori, um, I got Filipino once. That was, I was my delivery driver just said Filipino. I was like, nope, thank you, and gave him the money and left. And that was, that was the last. <laughs> But yeah, uh, and I think it's kind of just geography, right? Like uh, you don't typically see a lot of like Mexicans uh, in Asia. You know, where that's that's not the hot spot we're trying to go to right <laughs> right now. So let's wrap up with our final questions that we finish every podcast with. Mm. We ask all of our guests. So the first question is uh, links into the name of the podcast, Seven Million Bikes. There are over seven million bikes in Saigon, over forty-five million bikes in the whole of Vietnam. It's enough for one every two people, and that includes children and elderly. It's insane. But anyone who has lived here knows that the, the road rules are almost um, optional. Non-existent. Non-existent, I think, is a bit more um, accurate. What's your favorite unwritten rule of the road here? Uh, red lights basically mean check, check both ways to make sure no cars are coming, then go. Oh, I love that rule. It's such a time efficient rule where like, you know, just, oh, okay, well, how much I got? 50 seconds for this red light? Ah, oh, fuck that. I'll look to my left, look to my right. Nobody's coming. I'll just drive on through. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a victimless crime, you know? It's, it makes so much sense. I mean, when I went back home, it was just so frustrating. You're sitting, it was like midnight and yeah. the light's red. And there's no car and like literally a no mile, car. ten mile yeah. radius, and you yeah. just have to sit at this red light. And you, you probably would never get caught, yeah. not never, but you could probably do it. Because we just we just follow this rule that we're just going to sit here at this red light for sixty seconds and just wait until it changes, and then I can yeah. go. Nah, if if you're not going to hit that intersection in five seconds, that's that's a green light to me. Then, like, if I see a car coming, it's like, yeah, they're not going to get there in time, and I just, I'll just take off. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of my favorites as well. Now, I haven't asked you this question mm. yet. I normally ask everyone, and I'll probably already know the answer, even though you've been here for five and a half years. Mm. Do you speak Vietnamese? Oh, very little. Very. It, it's, we're shocking, aren't we? All those immigrants yeah. were terrible. Oh, we're the worst immigrants. We are. Yeah. And that's the thing. We're not expats. No. We're immigrants. Okay. Some of us come in here, marry a Vietnamese woman, get an anchor baby. That's an immigrant. Okay. That is, wear that badge. Do you know who speaks the worst Vietnamese? Who? Guys with a Vietnamese partner. Yes. They, That's uh, true. And I'm talking about Lewis, who produces this podcast, whose wife is Vietnamese. Yeah. Lewis used to speak Vietnamese and mm. then stopped. Really? My other friend is, um, I wouldn't say his name, I'll call him out, Peter mm. Seal. Mm. Your partner's Vietnamese, his fiance's Vietnamese. <laughs> about a year or two ago, he's been here five years. A year or two ago, he said, oh, I'm going to get some pho. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> That's like the first word you learn how to yeah. pronounce. Like, That's not even a word. That's just a... A question like you're, you're just reading the sign. <laughs> just 
So I just realized I'm thinking when he used this as a joke on stage sure. that and the fact that you laugh means I can use it sure. is the guys that speak the worst Vietnamese. Do you think anyone you know, any expat immigrant that I know mm. whose wife is Vietnamese or partner, you should be speaking Vietnamese because you've got a teacher to teach you how to speak it. Yeah. But instead you've got a translator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh man. And I was thinking about that too. Just like, oh, we are immigrants and we're the worst type. Uh, some of us are refugees if you think about it right like you I'm not gonna name any countries but like you talk about people from certain countries like ah oh, everything's fucked back home you know everything's going to shit the government's going to shit it's like you're sounding a lot like a refugee right now I'm like alright well we've talked about it before so I'm trying not to repeat myself but we are the worst immigrants and it's we in you know, countries like Australia New Zealand yeah. the UK when people move there and I'm probably sure the US as well why don't they speak English or they need to learn English or why do they all hang out with themselves? They need to assimilate. I remember when I lived in Australia, that was a big thing. We need immigrants immigrants to assimilate. It's like, why do you think we have like Little Italy and Chinatown and mm. Indian restaurants? And we are all first generation immigrants, right? We've all mm. left our home country sure. to a new language, a new culture. We don't speak it, most of us. Um, so we all hang out with each other. Most of my friends are expat. But even when I lived in New Zealand, most of my friends were not from New Zealand. Mm. It wasn't even like a race thing or a language thing. It's just everyone who lives in New Zealand has lived there their whole life, have their friend groups, their families. Right. We are the ones that are immigrants and coming in. Right. It's really difficult to break into those like friend groups that have existed since yeah. primary and high right. school. So even in New Zealand, nearly all of our friends were all from Australia, Ireland, Scotland, America. So I don't I, the, the notion that these that when the, in these countries these immigrants need to assimilate and speak their language. It's the next generations that yeah. will assimilate, like without without even effort. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So that's a long winded lead up to my question. <laughs> What's your most useful Vietnamese phrase? Oh, oi oi. Oh, it's I guess in. Do you guys say oi oi down here? No, no, choi oi. Oi choi oi. So this yeah. is two weeks in a row. This is the answer. Huh? That, that answer last week was the same one. Oh, yeah. zoi, oi. It's just such a good cop-out phrase, man. Like your driver will do something or you'll do something. Oh, I sound like such an asshole. You'll drive <laughs> You're a driver, uh, like your taxi driver. Uh, you'll do something or like you'll make a fool out of yourself in class or, you know, a student will have trouble and just be like, oi, zoi, oi, and just diffuses everything. Uh, and it's like, all right. I'm out, you guys. I'm going to leave this situation. So you've not changed to the southern pronunciation then? Oh, no. God, no. you know how long it took me? <laughs> <laughs> Five and a half years of bare minimum work. Yeah, uh, Just to get Ozoi. Yeah. <laughs> now, my next question is, where is your favorite sunset spot in Vietnam? Oh, man. Um, my old apartment in Hanoi. Um, my roommate and I had this apartment, and it was in 11 floors up, but where we lived, there was no... Like it was on the edge of the city, so there was nothing but mountains and fields that you can see, and the sunset would just set right perfectly. Uh, great, great spot. Just every day after work, just sit, watch the sunset. Perfect. Mountains, like you see the Tam Dao Mountains, Bavi Mountains in the background. It's nice. Nice. Mm. And would you rather live in Vietnam now or 20 years ago? Has anyone ever said 20 years ago? Like, that's my first. Obviously, now, that's where I would live. But. I think my Nia said 20 years ago his episode's coming up. Yeah, because he's, how old is he? Yeah, he, he wants to be young. nine. Yeah, he wants to be nine again, uh, pretty much. You know, he, <laughs> wants, he wants to be eight years old again. Uh, no, I, I definitely would, I am enjoying the time that I'm in Vietnam uh, in this time period. Yeah. I'm on the fence because I, I kind of, we've moved here 
so same as you five years ago and mm. the development in five years ago has just gone through the roof mm. and I don't just mean like structurally like the development of the cuisine and I mean western cuisine or like but that's mm. Vietnamese people are enjoying that not mm. not it's not for expats or immigrants it's for Vietnamese people cocktail bars craft beer the development of the country as a whole so there's a romantic notion of me that would really have liked to have been here like 10 20 years ago and saw before there was grab on every corner before there was grab delivery before there was all these craft beers like Misha Smith who uh, happy birthday Misha if you listened it was his birthday last night um when he first came here before Pasteur Street developed which was the first craft beer he was saying that getting a Heineken was like a treat really yeah because oh, that, God. Was, was the only, that was the only beer that was like a mm. fancy European beer was getting huh. a Heineken and even that there was only one or two bars you could get that in. Oh, shit. Okay. So even though I love my craft beer and I love my food and all of this, there's a romantic notion of me that would like to go back and see what it was like when you just didn't have those options. You didn't have all the mm. nice restaurants to eat at. You didn't mm. have the nice beer to drink. Didn't have grab delivery on tap. Like, and mm. just obviously as well, not as many buildings, a bit sleepier, a bit quiet. But then at the same time, I love all of those things as well. So... I'm kind of on the fence a bit with that. Yeah, yeah. There, there are some comforts that have popped up in the past five years. Like, oh yeah, thanks God. Uh, yeah, like I cheese, feel, hmm? cheese, cheese. Yeah. When we first came here five years ago, people were telling us we we asked someone what we asked someone what should we bring or what will we miss the most if mm. we move to Vietnam, and they were like cheese. cheese. <laughs> it's really difficult to get cheese here, mm. and it's not difficult it is expensive little yeah. cheese here like so you don't eat it that often because it's not really it's all imported yeah. but like, it is easily available now whereas I think like five, six, seven, eight, ten years ago yeah. like cheese yogurt milk like dairy products hmm. weren't even like available yeah that's, a, that's definitely a status symbol here in Vietnam like you see somebody out in the park eating cheese like oh wow okay I didn't know you were doing that well all right, good for you. You know, <laughs> never I, mind the Polish if they're eating cheese. They're, yeah, they're doing well. I do wonder because you mentioned things like in the Western countries you have like Little Italy, Little China. Uh, I wonder if Vietnamese, like the Vietnamese people, ever call like Taoyuan or like Taiho, like Little Europe. You know, like, yeah. Like I'm going, to, I'm going to Little Italy. You know, <laughs> on Swansea. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I wonder they should let's start that. We yeah, call Taoyuan Little Little mm. Europe now. Yeah, French Quarter. You know? Yeah, there you go. French Quarter. quarter. That's true. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Now, my final question is: What's missing from Vietnam? Ah, uh, uh, more, more. Vietnamese comedians, honestly. I love comedy and seeing, you know, when I first got here five years ago, it was just Minkus, you know, Minkus, Alex, who was a comedy magician, and Nikki, who was a comedy magician. So we had two comedy magicians and one just pure stand up comedian. And as the time has come, more Vietnamese comedians have come on and they're amazing, first of all. I mean, one thing I've noticed, and I think it kind of comes with, you know, English being their second language and they are performing in their second language is their economy of words is amazing. Uh, it's something I, I look to. So yeah, more Viet, Viet comics. Mm. I, I would like. That would be amazing. Yeah. But you know that the, 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 all the Vietnamese comics now yeah. do comedy in Vietnamese. Which is awesome, yeah. But now they don't do it in English, and I'm gutted. I've, I've yeah. had to stop asking them to do shows because yeah. they were just like, we're just doing the Vietnamese comedy now. Yeah. And they're killing it. Like They're doing big, massive shows. Yeah. They're getting sponsorships. Their YouTube channel's going through the roof. And they were all doing comedy in English, and right. they were hilarious. Right. 
And now they've all got so so I I worry that some people might look at our comedy scene and be like, well, why is there no Vietnamese comics? And it's like because right. they're all doing it in Vietnamese. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, no, we need to learn it yeah. so we can we can enjoy their yeah. format. You yeah, know? for sure. Yeah. And I do have one extra added question because um, you I would obviously be I would imagine mm. a, a connoisseur of Mexican food of Mexican <laughs> food. Yeah. Uh, is that a, is that a racist assumption? Uh, no, I mean I just call it food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we do have a. So I love Mexican food. Mm. Um, apart from my wife's Mexican food, she makes amazing stuff. Uh, they were spoiled with the amount of restaurants here that mm, have unbelievable Mexican food. Yes. So you don't need to rank them, and you don't need to tell, call out what's the worst one. But what's three of your choices? Three recommended choices for Mexican food in Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City. Okay, so let's. Oh man, so I, I would have to mainly stick to Hanoi because I mean I've only been here for two months, but already you know the Mexican food in Saigon has just blown me away, um, and just how it's so much closer to home. All right, so the tostadas from Chilangos in D1 here—that is a taste of home for me. Um, Javier up north in Anita's Cantina, um, his quesadillas and his plates, you know, he, he does, it's, it's a Mexican dish, right? You got that red rice, you got the refried beans and you got your food, a little salad on the side. Um, so I, I miss that. It's a very homey feeling. Um, Tippies, Tippies is good. Like I met him. He's an amazing dude. And his enchiladas again, brought me back home. Um, Good restaurant tours, Adam in Salt and Lime. I, I respect Adam so much because uh, he was he was the original or one of the first Mexican restaurants in Hanoi, and I, I'll always give it to him. And he also like sells his tortillas and stuff like that. And I, I respect him because uh, just what he's been able to do with his restaurant and how it's still going. So I'll still go back. His burritos are good, and Rico Tacos is good. Let's see what else. Oh. Naco Taco. The dude is from Tijuana. The dude is from Tijuana, which is where my family's from, Tijuana. And he does birria tacos. And that, he, like, to me, like, I, I almost teared up when I tried those. So if you're ever in Hanoi, you know, try Anita's. Um, Anita's salt and lime for a good burrito, because Adam, Adam does them well. But if you want, like, a good taco, Naco Taco, the birria tacos are amazing. So, yeah. yeah. No, it's good. You get I, I like asked you for three, and you just got so excited. You're yeah. just firing them out. I love yeah. it. There's a new taco spot. Have you been to the German beer hall on no. Twi? Yeah. And Luis um, has a new taco spot. I'm forgetting your last name, Luis. Luis, yeah, he's he Chilangos, right? It's not Chilangos, no. I don't oh, he's, so. isn't he the owner from Chilangos? Or they just probably have the same name. Mm, I'm not 100% sure. But anyway, if you want good tacos, go to the German Beer Hall. They've got all the food stalls there. Mm -hmm. And he just started last month and the tacos there are amazing. We were in the German Beer Hall a couple of weeks ago for a beer and ended up buying a like whole enchilada from because it was just, I was like, I want your food. Yeah. So good. So check that one out. I also hear there's one out there that like, that's it, it's been, oh God. And if I missed you in Saigon, I'm sorry, but there's been it's hard there's one in in Taodian that's really good as well the dude's from Cali via Q dude District Matt, Federal District Fed, no not District no. Federal they're good um, um, but it's this guy Matt from Ta he, his restaurant's in Taodian and he does a great burrito mojado mm. see that's the thing because like they all have one thing uh, that, that I that I crave and sometimes I'll crave it's like alright it's burrito mojado night let's go to Taodian <laughs> 
So I'm ready for Mexican food now. Yeah. It's coming up to lunch, so I think yeah. I think I know what I'm going to be getting. Yeah, so, so. <laughs> Tippy, I'm going to be giving you a shout in a minute. Yeah. Um, well, look, tell us what's up, coming up next for you. So we know I mentioned in the beginning we got the mm. headliner show. Tell our listeners more about that. That's coming up on the 13th, and tell them where they can follow you, where they can watch you, how can they interact and get in touch with you. All right. So you guys, if you guys want to follow me, you guys can follow my Instagram at all the odd reasons. Uh, all like everything the and then odd like strange all the odd reasons on instagram um next show is on the 13th uh casey is going to be opening up she's a great new comic that's just appeared on the scene uh i've seen her perform and i've heard great reviews as well and she's just loads of fun to watch i'm excited to perform with her uh so yeah saturday the 13th you got where can we get our tickets online right at seven million bikes.com yeah, you can reserve our tickets, and yeah, I'll be performing at a few shows uh, throughout this entire month. So if you want, you can just follow my Instagram, and I'll post all my shows on there. Awesome. And tell, explain what is the headliner? What makes it different? Oh, uh, the headliner. What makes it different is a. Uh, there's only two. Uh, there's only two comics, right? So you're not going to get five. It's just Casey and I. Casey's doing a 25 minute set. And then uh, I'm doing a 45-minute set, so it'll be a bit of a longer set. And it's hosted by our great podcast host, Neil, in his 7 Million Bikes. So, of course, uh, it's going to be a great show. Um, I'm obviously going to work my best to give you guys a great night. Uh, you know how I feel about audiences and the responsibility we hold. So hopefully I live up to that, and I look forward to seeing you guys all there. And this is a limited availability, so there's only 30 seats available in 1920 Prohibition Bar. So you actually go on the Facebook page, find the event, and the, the link is in there to buy your tickets, which will take you to another website. Um, but it will sell out. Every single one of the headliner shows that we've done has sold out. It's always a great night. So uh, make sure you go on there and get your ticket if you want to see Eric, Casey, and me at 1920 Prohibition Bar. So awesome. Thank you so, so much. It was wicked. I really enjoyed chatting. It's good to talk about comedy. Um, I don't talk about comedy so much, so it's good to have a bit of a deeper dive into a comedian's life. But also interesting... Um, the point of a Vietnam podcast is everybody has a story and so I'm excited to be able to share your story and learn more about you. So thank you for coming on. Thank you so much, Neil. This has been awesome, man. I appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of 7 Million Bikes. I want to say a massive thank you to Lewis Wright, who's the producer of a Vietnam podcast. Make sure that the sound quality is tip top for you. I want to also give a massive shout out to Devin Gray and say thank you so much for helping the new website that's just been developed and published. So check out 7millionbikes.com. Could not have done that without Devin Gray, who's also supported with some of the graphic design on the logo. So thank you so, so much to Lewis and Devin. I also want to say a massive thank you to Lane Wynn, who's always been a massive supporter of 7 Million Bikes. She actually helped design the original logo. Um, and she's now going to be helping even more. So thank you so much, Leigh. And again, thank you so much to everyone for listening. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. I hope you enjoyed that content. You can send us a message on Facebook or Instagram. Let me know what you think of this episode. Let me know what you think of 7 Million Bikes. Any feedback, suggestion, I love to hear from people. It would be amazing. And if you do enjoy this content, please look us up on patreon.com or coffee.com. The link is in the show notes and you can support 7 Million Bikes. So thank you very much. Cheers. And of course... Thank you so much to our current Patreons, Brandon Thompson and Zion Johnson.
I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're like me, you may use your laptop at places where you have to use public Wi-Fi. This opens you up to digital snoopers. It's a massive problem. It can be your internet service provider, or you know who, looking at what you do online, or a cyber criminal trying to steal your bank passwords or credit card info, or even a hacker at the next table trying to steal your sensitive data. These days, it is vital that you keep your data safe. NordVPN keeps all of these snoopers away. It makes your internet activity private, protects you from accessing dangerous websites that are fishing for your data, and lets you enjoy your favorite content securely, even while away from home. And it's easy to use, even I could use it. I've actually been using NordVPN for years now here in Vietnam, and I'm excited to be an affiliate partner with them. I've used NordVPN to watch Netflix, BBC, Disney Plus with ease. And I also know that my information and data are safe from prying eyes, whoever they may be. Join now and you'll get 68% off and three months free when you go to my link, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. Just again, for those hard of hearing, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. The link is also in the show notes. I know nobody checks them out, but go check that out and you can get the link from wherever you are listening to this podcast. As an affiliate partner, it also means that I will get a small commission when you sign up, but at no extra cost to you. So not only will you be getting a great deal through 7 Million Bikes, you get a great VPN and you'll be supporting 7 Million Bikes podcast. Stay safe online and enjoy the shows you love. Any questions, just let me know. You know how to get in touch with me. And thanks for listening to this show. Cheers.